0: What a great day. We've already had a wonderful, wonderful breakfast. But when you, when you think of Easter Sunday, I mean, it really is a day of joy. It's a day of hope. It's a day of victory. It's really on this day that we base our faith. In fact, we've already read this morning that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and he said that you are still in your sins. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to everything we believe in the Christian faith, and so my question to you this morning from the Word of God is this. How did... The disciples respond to the resurrected Christ that first Easter morning. How did they respond? And maybe I could ask in just a a little bit how should you respond? And maybe if we thought back just for a moment to the disciples, as you've grown up maybe around the things of Scripture, you've heard about the resurrection, this question did they believe instantly? Did they believe automatically? Well, I I would say that not one of the 11 disciples expected Jesus to rise from the grave. Not one of them. I mean, this thought of his bodily resurrection was the furthest thing from their mind. So how do you know that? Well, the, the scripture would tell us that. In fact, when Mary Magdalene reported to the disciples after his appearance to her on that first Easter morning it says this in mark 16 eleven when they heard from Mary that she, he was alive and had been seen by her the scripture says in mark 16 eleven they refused to believe it so it's not like they were did he did he in fact really no, the, the text says they refused to believe it. Strike one. Then, after the Lord appeared to do two disciples, you remember that, on the road to Emmaus, Mark 16:13 says this: that they, those two, went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Strike two. You've got testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in both those accounts, the disciples, speaking of the 11 at that point, did not believe. Luke is even more specific and explicit. In Luke 24, it said, "...the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense." and they would not believe them. Strike three. Three separate occasions of those who have seen the risen, resurrected Christ, the apostles, I say the eleven without Judas, did not believe. And the question I want to ask you and us this morning, how did that all change for the disciples? How did the resurrection of Jesus Christ turn them from unbelief to belief, from sorrow to a place of joy? And what I want to do this morning is take you back to that first Easter Sunday, and the passage is found in John chapter 20, verse 19. Would you, if you brought your Bible, turn there to John Chapter 20, and I want to exposit here briefly, 19 through 31. It's the first Easter. It's the first day. He had risen, if you will, that morning. And I want us to look at, as you follow here in the exposition, two resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ that display his deity and demand a response from you this morning. I mean, the scripture is real clear. He is risen from the grave and really the scripture demands a response. It demanded a response from the apostles and it will demand a response from you. And so as we walk into this exposition, as we look at these two resurrection appearances, I want to ask you, how will you respond to this truth? The first appearance was the appearance and commission to the disciples. The appearance and the commission to the disciples. Let's pick up the text. I want to read it as we go, rather than read it to you all together at once. Let's discover it as it unfolds to us. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear... ...of the Jews. Stop right there just for a moment. You can see it's on the evening of that day. So here we're celebrating Easter. This is Easter Sunday morning. Go way back on that first day when Jesus Christ had raised from the dead. It's Sunday. But here according to the text in verse 19, it's evening of that day. And of course here John the writer says it's the first day of the week and the doors were shut... Now, as you walk into this text in John chapter 20, don't forget that Mary, just earlier that day and earlier that morning, had announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the disciples. In fact, let me show you. Look back in verse 18. It says there in 2018, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So she had seen the resurrected Jesus that particular Sunday morning. Now, that first Easter, on that Sunday night, they had the doors shut, it says in the New American Standard. Here in the ESV, it says that they were locked for the fear of the Jews. And not to get over technical, don't just think that they had the door shut. In the original language, they had it barred shut, if you will. They had locks in their own day as we have locks. They usually would bring a little swing through, kind of a wrought iron, and shut it over it. And these disciples, on that first evening, that first Sunday night, were locked in that room. You say, for what reason? Well, look again at verse 19. It says they were there for the fear of the Jews. You remember, obviously, that three days prior... They had just witnessed the crucifixion of the Messiah. And possibly in their minds and in their hearts, if they got the Messiah, they could come get us. If they crucified him, they might crucify us as followers of him. And so they if they took him out, then maybe these disciples figured they can take us out. In fact, if they remembered the words of Christ, back in John 15, 20, Jesus instructed his disciples that they, like their master, he told them, would suffer and be persecuted. And so there they were on that first Sunday night, not believing the reports, huddled together in some house behind locked doors. In fact, this thought of being fearing of the Jews is not new to the gospel. In John chapter 17, it spoke of the multitudes. Excuse me, in John 7 verse 13, it spoke of the multitudes. And here's what it said of the multitudes. No one was speaking openly of him, Christ. Here's why. For fear of the Jews. They lived in the fear of the Jews. In fact, do you remember in John chapter 9, when the man was born blind And they wanted to know whose sin, this man, right, or his parents, whose sin was it? And it was neither. But remember, they brought this man's parents into the temple, and they demanded a response. And the parents said this. His parents said this because they answered it a certain way, you ask him. And it said they answered that way because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So in this gospel, in the gospel writing, there was a great fear of the Jews, not just by the disciples who were huddled behind a locked closed door, the multitude's feared the Jews, the blind man's parents, if you will, feared the Jews. Do you remember in John 19 when Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, it says, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. I mean, I suppose there is a degree of boldness in Joseph of Arimathea, but he was a secret follower of Christ. Why? For fear of the Jews. In addition to these things, do you remember in Matthew's gospel that the story after the resurrection was being falsely circulated that the disciples had in fact stolen the body? In other words, they had to make up some kind of story in that day and in the subsequent days. And in Matthew 28, 1 through 6, they made up the story that the disciples had stolen the body. So, yes, when we come to the text here, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So, here were these disciples driven by fear, huddled together behind locked doors, experiencing the traumatized effect of life without Jesus. Think about it just for a moment. Gone was their master, gone was the miracle worker, gone was their friend, gone was their leader. Their hopes as a group of men were crushed. Their plans, if you will, for the last three years were shattered, so they thought. Jesus crucified. I mean, understand this. These disciples on that first Sunday night were fearful. They were even unbelieving, even in light of Mary's report earlier that morning. I mean, Grace Church of the Valley, can you imagine the sorrow The disappointment that was filling the room behind those shut doors. And then, to their utter shock, look at the text in verse 19. It says there in the second half of 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now the text is so subtle but so powerful. In other words, as they're huddled behind those doors, the bar is down, it's locked. It must have been a somber moment and time frame. And suddenly and miraculously, Jesus came. Look at the text again. And it says he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Now, some liberals have stated their opinions As to how Jesus suddenly appeared. Some liberals in their writings say that he was hiding in the room. And he just kind of popped out. Hi guys, you know I'm here. Another liberal says that he kind of sneaked in and came through the window. I mean can you just see Jesus kind of climbing through the window? There's even one guy who said, no, the way he got in that room is he descended from the roof. They're all trying to take the supernatural out. Take the words literally. Jesus, the thought is, suddenly, miraculously stood in their midst. Listen, you say, well, what happened? Well, the way the scripture reads is he just materialized and he was there say, well, how did he do that? Well, this isn't like stuff that they do with Star Wars or when I grew up, they had Star Trek, right? And you had to beam someone up. Well, we know that's Hollywood studio stuff. But here in this instance, he suddenly, miraculously appeared right before them and standing in their midst, imagine that. Beyond the horror of the crucifixion in the midst of these fearing disciples, Jesus had a wonderful message to them. Peace be with you. I mean, I was, I was studying this week and I just had to laugh. I mean, he could have came up right behind him and said, boo! I mean, I mean, think of what he could have done. He could have just utterly surprised them with a boo. Or, or maybe on the other hand, as he got in their midst, he could have ripped into them. He, maybe he could have just even lit into them. I mean, they all, the gospel says, had deserted him, but he doesn't do any of that. He comforts their fears. So tender is the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at that greeting that he gave to them. It says, peace be with you you've been to Israel, and we're taking a group in January of 2015, he told them, shalom, shalom. It's a very common greeting, but I really believe in this context, the full significance of the word peace is present. In fact, when you track that word down in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's closely associated with the blessing of God, especially to the salvation that would be brought by the Messiah. And here is the glorious news now is peace has come. What has come is his shalom, his peace. And on that Easter evening, I believe it is the complement to the cross just 3 days prior when he said it is finished on the cross what i think is so unique beyond just the the statement as we read it peace be with you is he promised this peace do you remember look back in your bible to john 14 just for a second This was not just a statement that he gave him. It certainly was, but there's power in it. It goes back to the Old Testament, but it comes back also to New Testament promises. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 25. Remember when he was telling him that he was going to go away, okay? And he said in 1425, these things I have spoken to you while while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled Neither let them be afraid. And then he says, you have heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you and so forth. So here in the midst, before he left, before his cross, he predicted this peace that he would leave to them and this peace that he would give to them. In fact, if you look over just a couple pages, go over to John chapter 16, you'll see it there. And again, in verse 33, he says, he, you know, even when he looks, he kind of foretells the crucifixion. 1632, behold, he said, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, he said, that in me, you may have what? Peace. So isn't it interesting that he at first appearance to these disciples, rather than a firm rebuke, rather than a harsh word, rather than a critical spirit, rather than reminding them of all their faults, He comes in so tender and so kind and says, peace be to you. You say, well, what happened next? Well, look at the text, John 20, 20. When he had said this, this is incredible. He showed them his hands and his side. And then it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord the Lord immediately took the steps to convince the disciples that he was alive from the dead. I like how Luke's gospel says it in Luke 24, 39. It says there, see my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. There in Luke 24, he said, touch me and see He said, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I mean, one of the proofs of the resurrection to, you know, to combat docetism that came later that said that Jesus really didn't physically rise from the dead. He was merely a phantom or a ghost of who he was. This scripture counteracts that. It is Jesus Christ In the flesh. It is his hands. It is his side. Listen, this is not a phantom. This is not an illusion. This is not just a spirit, as the liberals would say. He is physically and literally raised. Amen? That's what the scripture says. And as the disciples behold their master alive, listen, all fear is banished. And the text says that they were glad. The text says that they rejoiced. So when I asked you earlier, how did that all change? It changed by his resurrection to them and they rejoiced. But even their rejoicing and even them being glad, if you will, was another fulfillment of the scripture. Look back in John chapter 16, just for a moment. In John chapter 16, Jesus said that they would respond like this. Do you remember in John 16 verse 20? That great text, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but the sorrow will be turned into joy. And then this, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish For the joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus said they would respond this way. And that's the text. It says in verse 20, When the disciples saw him, they were glad when they saw the Lord. You say, well, what happened next? Well, look on. Verse 21 Jesus said to them again a second time, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. 2022. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this resurrection appearance gives way here to this commission to the disciples. And he told them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's volumes written on what it is to receive the Holy Spirit. What spirit were they receiving? Certainly, I don't believe he's speaking of the coming spirit that would come at Pentecost. That seems unique and distinct and so different. I think what he was doing here to these disciples when he greeted them was to breathe on them, literally to excel on them, the empowerment to the disciples in anticipation that the spirit would come in its fullness in seven weeks. In about 50 days, they were going to see that spirit unleashed at Pentecost. Now that commissioning to them is always connected to the message preached. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withhold or it is retained. I mean, we know, beloved, that forgiveness is a divine prerogative. The scriptures say of God alone. God can only forgive sin. And in no way are we to confer that this is some kind of apostolic authority to be exercised by the apostles, divorced from the message to be preached. In fact, it is by virtue of the preached gospel that the sins would be forgiven, not some hierarchical authority given to the 12. In fact, I think it's worthy to note here that the when it says the forgiveness of sins and the retaining of sins, They're both in what we would call in the language, in the passive form, implying the divine agency and that the preacher's role is only declaratory. In other words, the pastors, those apostles, the preachers preach. That is the message, and God is the author of this forgiveness. So the message is clear. Repent and believe on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. To reject the person of Christ is to retain your sins and not be forgiven. So here's the appearance and the commission to the disciples. But look at secondly here. The appearance to Thomas and the disciples. This is incredible. Look at verse 24. You remember this. Now Thomas one of the twelve okay, called the twin In fact, in the other translation, he's called Didymus, but here in the ESV, he's called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, and it's cast in a tense that they kept repeatedly telling Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, look at 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, he said, I will never, what? I'm not going to believe. Now you, you say, well, Scott, when Jesus came and to the first appearance here in 19 through 23, Thomas was obviously not there. You say, well, where was he? Well, we just don't know where he was. In fact, I would think that if we spoke of Thomas, you would usually attach a name to him, wouldn't you? What would you call him? We sometimes call him Doubting Thomas, don't we? And I don't, I I mean, maybe it's fair. Some people seem to be a little harder on him than I think I would be. I mean, the only reason I'm saying that is all the disciples were huddled behind a locked closed door. And Jesus appeared and he said, peace be with you. And they saw the Lord and he changed their gloom to sorrow, their sadness to joy. Thomas wasn't there. In fact, I kind of think that Thomas has a unique personality. I think he was one of those one of those souls, if you will, that was just so tender, so devoted to the Lord. But I think he could also become so easily... Discouraged, this is not the first time that we meet doubting Thomas. Let, let me just show you just for free. Look over at John eleven. He was in a passage earlier i mean we 're just kind of hard on the guy i, I don 't know if i 'm so hard, but look at john eleven and and remember this was when Lazarus had died, right, and um, Lazarus had died, and it says in, and i 'm in John eleven eleven after these things he said to them, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep." But I will go awaken him. And the disciples said to him in 11, 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you would believe, but let us go to him. Here's the response. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, or let us also go that we may, what? Die with him. So how did he get that out of it? Well, he's like Eeyore a little bit, I guess. He just has that type of temperament, but I want you to know there was a devotion to to him. If we go see Lazarus, and he raises him from the dead, and Jesus is beginning to talk about his death, then we're going to go with him, and Thomas was going to say, I'm going to go with him, and I'm even going to die with him. So there was something in Thomas that showed a devotion. But he also got discouraged, didn't he? And you know the one. John 14. Look to the right just for a moment. Thomas also got discouraged. Of course, you're aware. well aware of when he said in 14 too, in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going and now this Thomas said to him Lord we do not know where you are going how can we know the way. Now, I don't want to read into it, but there's some discouragement there. Lord, even though you've been telling us where you're going, where are you going? And how do we really know the way? And so you've got a mixture in Thomas. People call him doubting Thomas, but there's an absolute devotion to him. If we go, then I'm going to go and I'm going to die with you. But Lord, if you go, what is the way and where do we go? So I call Thomas the devoted one, but also the discouraged one. Think about it just for a moment if you're Thomas and you are wired that kind of way. Wired towards deep devotion, but wired at the same time towards deep discouragement. Here was a man who had lost all hope in the crucifixion. And the anguish of his heart was great. I mean, this guy's universe collapsed in a sea of depression at the cross of Christ. And from the bottom of his heart, he gave this passionate plea, hearing, in other words, is not enough for Thomas. He must see Christ. He must feel the holes, if you will. And then he's going to believe. He wants to see Christ with his eyes. He wants to put his finger in his side. He wants to feel where the soldier pierced him. That's Thomas. I don't know if I'd call him doubting Thomas. I think he just wanted verification. I think he wanted his faith to go beyond just the disciples' words. And you know what's incredible? Look back to John chapter 20. His challenge did not go met. Because it says in John twenty twenty 8 days later. And we just take that in the scripture. It's the following Sunday night, okay? The disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now, here's what I get. you see this? Although the doors were what? Were locked. Now, you say, what are you going to point out there? Well, even though he breathed the Spirit onto them, they're still, Katie bar the door, behind the door, locked. I mean, they're still, they've seen them, but they're still living in fear with the Jews and of the Jews. And a week later, the disciples are there. Thomas is with them. The doors were locked. And look at verse 26. Jesus came. They were locked. And he stood among them and said, what? Peace be with you. And then he said, 2027 to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but what? But believe. There you, I believe, have it in your notes. Here's the demand of Thomas. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and at the command of Jesus, see my hands. He said, unless I put my finger into the place of the nails, And he said, in essence, bring your finger here. He said, thirdly, put my hand into his side. And Jesus said, put your hand and put it into my side. Thomas said, I definitely will not believe. And Jesus said, be no longer unbelieving, but believing. What a moment that first Easter! Was that incredible? He said, well, what? After he encountered this, what was the response of Thomas? Look at the text. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my, what, God. He goes, if we use that refrain, from doubting Thomas to believing Thomas as confessor and declarer of the resurrection. I mean, beloved, this confession is strong. My Lord and my God. And Thomas in that act said, he is my Lord and he is my God. And listen, his statement does not simply declare the resurrection. Listen, it does. But his confession expresses the ultimate meaning of the resurrection, the declaration of who Jesus really is. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley. He is God in the flesh, raised from the dead. This is who he is. And I really believe as you read this at the end of John's gospel, he brackets his whole gospel here. Can I just show you one moment? Look back to John chapter 1. I think he's closing his gospel out for which John the apostle has written. You remember he opened... With a magnanimous statement in John 1.1. You know well there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word, what does it say? Was God. Look at verse 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Glance down at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. And look at verse 18, one of the most touching statements in all of the Word of God. One eighteen says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side And I love this phrase, he has made him what? Known. In other words, Jesus Christ, by his appearance in physical life and now here, his death, as we get to the end of John, if you've seen Christ, that's why he said, you've seen the Father. I like what that text says in the original original language. He has made him known. It's the word that we kind of get exegesis from. When you're teaching the scripture, to exegete the scripture is to draw out the scriptures meaning, to make sense of it. And what John is saying here is that no one has seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. But But if you've seen Christ, you've seen the father. He has made him known. So here, Thomas declares the ultimate meaning of the resurrection is the declaration of who Jesus is. He is my Lord and my God. What a statement. But look on. The text isn't finished. It's amazing. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, twenty twenty nine, after he made that wonderful declaration, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed, and he kind of gives back to the Sermon on the Mount. Makarios, blessed are those who have not seen and yet, what? Believed. Now, the question, again, at verse 29, when he said, blessed are those who have not seen, who are the those? Well, he's certainly not talking about the other ten. They had just seen the Lord twice Materialize, if you will, in their presence in the room when the doors were locked. And I think this is fascinating by John. The words of John, and here specifically, the words of Christ turn from the disciples to Thomas, now to you. You are the those who have never seen him, in verse 29, yet have believed. And it reminds me of what Peter said, that though you have not seen him, 1 Peter eight, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What a text here. We looked at the appearance of the disciples We looked at the appearance to the disciples as well as Thomas. And here, Thomas' disclosure of Christ achieved the purpose of John's gospel. In other words, John had a reason to write. And you say, well, what was the reason to write? Well, he tells us very clearly why he wrote this gospel. You say, well, what is it? Well, it's just the next verse, and you've seen it before, but we divorce it from the context. Look at twenty thirty. It says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not, what, written in this book. Now, you know, if you want to get, like, super technical, I think if you went by the book of John, how many miracles are there? I mean, you probably wouldn't know that if I just popped it on you. About 35. 35. I mean, not just, like, he he fixed somebody internal illness, 35 demonstrable miracles. That's just in John's gospel. Now, there's other miracles. In fact, he says here, look at it again in 30. There were many other signs. They're they're just not recorded. And they they, they said many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which John did not write in his book. But he did write some. And he did write these. And he did write this gospel. And Jesus was raised from the dead. And you say, well, to what end was he raised for? The next verse, look at it. He's closing his gospel out. Last chapter, one more. He said, but these are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing You may have life in his name. There it is. Here's why John wrote his book. He is both Christ. He is the Messiah, as you can see it right there. He is Christ, the Messiah from the Old Testament. And verse 31 says, he is son of God. He is deity. So he is the promise of everything written in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And in addition to that, he is son of God. He is deity. It is the clearest purpose statement in all of the gospels. And John's purpose in writing, as he says here, is that you would believe. But believing even has a greater purpose. Look again at verse 31. And that by believing, you may, (laughs) what does it say? Have life. In his name. Now, certainly, you would say, that's eternal life. And I would say, yes, of course it's eternal life. But that's not all it says. The thief comes, Jesus said in John 10.10, to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that you may have what? Life. Listen, when you become a believer, you really begin to live. You know, how many of you, even this morning, were filled with joy? Filled maybe even with tears, as we sang, Thrilled, walking away from communion on Good Friday. That Almighty God loved you before the foundation of the world. That Almighty God gave you His only Son to die on the cross for your sins. The just, if you will, for the unjust in order to bring you to God. Listen, it's only the believer who understands real life now. Jesus came that he would let you believe and that in believing, you would have life in his name. Now, if you just give me one more minute, we're almost done. Look at this. Go back to John chapter 5. Because if you're connected to Christ, you get life. In John chapter 5... In verse 26, here's what Jesus said. He said in 526, For as the Father has, what does it say? Life in himself. Nobody gave him life. He just has life. He always was. Always is. He, there was never a time when there was not God the Father. Never a time when there was not God the Son. Never a time when there was not God the Holy Spirit. He is the self existent one. 526 The Father has life in Himself. Look again at 26. And He has granted the Son also to have what? Life in Himself. Amazing. Look over at John 6, if you will, in verse 57. As the living father 657 sent me I live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he will also live because of me Look over at John 11:25 He traces this theme of life all the way through John But in John 11 in verse 25 Jesus said to her, if you back up in 11.24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, what? Live. Here's what gets me most at resurrection. God the Father has life in himself. The Father gave the Son to have life in himself. And whoever puts their faith, their trust, their belief in Christ also receives what? Life itself. Jesus said, I came, if you go back there, to give life. In fact, you know it. Look over at John 14, 6. You might know that by heart. That I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. So life belongs to the Father. Life belongs to the Son. It is now extended to us through Christ in his death on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So for you, this Easter morning, the only appropriate response to the resurrection of the Lord is the response of Thomas. My Lord and my what? god you know i drove by today and i don't i don't mean this in in like a prideful way but i wanted to yell out to the guys on the golf course hey get to church he's risen from the and they're out golfing in his creation standing on his grass breathing his air their life pumping blood that he gave them. And, and, and yet, I have to come back and say, there go I, but by the what? The grace of God. But listen, this is the only response to all the people alive today. The response of Thomas has got to be your response. So listen, throw away the guys on the golf course. How about you? You're here today. You're hearing the word of God. He is, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Listen, he is alive, he is reigning in heaven, he is to be trusted, he is to be obeyed, he is to be worshipped, he is to be adored. I mean, this is the only proper response to John's gospel. Jesus is Lord, he's master, he's owner, he's ruler, he's God, he's supreme deity. Paul said in Colossians, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, when it says that he's the firstborn, he's not the firstborn from the dead. I just read Lazarus raised from the dead. But when it says that he's the firstborn of the dead, the Greek word is prototokos, and he's the preeminent one of those who have been raised and risen from the dead. He is the prototokos, the first one in preeminence, so that at the end of Colossians 1.18, Paul said there that in everything he might have preeminence. I mean, this is undoubtedly the greatest confession a person can make in his life. Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral influence. He's Lord. He's God. And you say, well, what must I do? What? I mean, that's the question. What must I do? Well, it says in John 20, if you look back there, he says, "But these are written that you may believe you 've got to believe you 've got to believe. Would you go back just for a moment to John three? Take just a moment with me and walk through john he said in john twenty thirty one you've got to believe in him and this is what john 's been saying the whole way, and so i 'm asking you now, not the guys on the golf course you have you done this John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what believes in him should not perish but have what eternal life you've got to put your trust in him you've got to believe look at john 3 verse 36 whoever believes in the son has what eternal life so here's what's amazing you don't get this by working at it you don't get this by doing good deeds You don't get this by giving to our building, though you may give to our building, okay? Salvation comes to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Look at John 3.36 again. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. you got to believe. Look over a couple chapters at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the New Testament. Jesus said in 524, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what eternal life. Here's the promise. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You got to put your trust in him. You're hoping him. Look over at John chapter 6, verse 40. He says there in 640, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have what? Eternal life. And here's the promise. I will raise him up on the what? Last day. Listen, some of you who fear maybe death, that is a promise. He's going to raise you up on the last day as sure as he rose Jesus on the third day. That power that raised him from the dead, Ephesians 1 is going to be the same power that will raise you from the grave. Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day there in John 6, 40. Look over it, a couple more. John 11, John 11, John 11, verse 23. We've touched on this. She was so sad that she had lost her brother, remember? In John 11, it says this, In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will, what, rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She had hope, right? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the, what, life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, what, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And, she, and he said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And look at 1127. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So my question to you is, do you believe this? There can only be one proper response, and that's to cry out and say, my Lord and my God. And what it means, and I speak to all of you, you may be in elementary school this morning. You may be a high school student. You may be even in college or working or an adult but you've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to come to a place where you confess your sin to him and acknowledge that your sin is against him. And then you put your hope and your trust and your belief in the person of Christ. And what that specifically means is that you turn away from yourself Turn away from your own righteousness. Turn away from your own good deeds. Fall on your knees. Beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me. A what? A sinner. But you got to place your faith in Christ. And you can't get in the faith of your grandpa. You can't get in the faith of your mom and dad into heaven. You've got to put your trust and hope and belief in Christ. And listen, he's raised and Thomas's response has to be your response. My Lord and my God. Have you done that? I, I pray that you have. For me, it was when I was 14. Went in the room, got down on my knees. I recognized that I was a sinner. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. And I invited him, if you will, by faith into my heart to deliver me from hell. And I found him to be a merciful and wonderful savior. Amen. You can do that now. But this is the only proper response to the resurrection is to put your hope and your confidence and your trust in him. Amen.